What's my most favorite thing to do? To talk. Every week I'll do just that. We'll feature national and international movers and shakers, experts in their fields, and all-around interesting people with something more than great to say. No holds barred. We'll tackle every topic imaginable, especially for women over 40. This is Conversations with Sima. Please stay tuned. Today we'll be talking with a New York Times writer about every aspect of motherhood. What is motherhood like in today's society? What is motherhood going to look like in 20 years? Why is she so interested in motherhood anyway? And all of the other nuances that make up being a mother. K.J. Delantonia is a writer and contributing editor for the New York Times Well Family page, formerly known as Motherload, and a regular contributor to its Sunday Review. She covers the personal and policy aspects of parenthood. Right now, she's at work in a book about raising a family, having a life, and loving almost every minute of it. She lives in New Hampshire with her husband, four children, and assorted horses, chickens, dogs, and cats. So welcome, KJ. Thanks for having me. Let's just start about you. Tell me a little bit about your journey to your present incarnation, how it happened, and where are you at now? I started out as a lawyer. I went to law school. I had six different legal jobs in about as many years, and one of them lasted three years, so that should tell you how long the others lasted. It was not the place for me. And then a lot of things happened family-wise, including the birth of my first child, and I decided it was time to be who I've really always been, which is a writer. And I, I started out doing food writing in New York, started out really doing a massive amounts of freelance pitching and turned to, honestly, I think I turned to writing about family in part because we left New York and I was sort of dubious about my ability to write about food outside of New York. It was very restaurant focused and there aren't that many restaurants where I live now. And it was pointed out to me that, you know, you can only review the same three restaurants in your town once and and there you are. So I was sort of left with, what am I interested in? What's going on in my world? What have I always been interested in? And the thing I came back to was family. Partly my experience with, you know, having this kid and having this move and the the gender changes in in our our roles as parents, and partly just looking around me and uh, exploring how other people were doing this thing that seemed both so overwhelming and also so like it was supposed to just be this little side hustle. I'm not really interested in the topic. And has that topic helped define your life, or has your life truly defined the topic as you just stated? I I guess there's two answers to that. Has having a family defined my life? Absolutely. I I think it defines most people's lives, whether we talk about it in that way or not. It's, it's, It's every choice we make. It's so much of what we think about and what we do. Most of my writing and my professional approach to this has been more about that angle, about this question of how we got to a point in society when, you know, if you ask almost anybody with kids what the most important thing in their lives are, they're going to say they're kids. But if you look at our media, our policies, a lot of things, we don't put the same emphasis on family and family support that we do on, say, baseball. I think that the conundrum sort of lies with the fact that our four sisters, like Suzanne Braun-Levine or Gloria Steinem, 
really gave us the message that it was important, necessary, and possible to be or do anything you wanted as a woman. Oh, and yeah, by the way, if you also wanted to be a mother or have children or be in a partnership, you could also have that too. So I think that the meeting of those two worlds becomes very problematic, especially for successful women. Do you agree? It is tough. You know, I I think like many of us, I'm not big on the phrase having it all. It's not a personal favorite. It's, It's a great topic, but I think that almost everyone under every circumstance makes interesting compromises. I'm really interested in the ways that men are starting to make those same compromises and how we're trying to shift that world from just a women's world, which is such a strange place for it to be, into an everyone's world and where the pushback on that is coming from. There's so, I mean, there's just, there's just so much. But, you know, it, absolutely, if you want to start a conversation, sit down with a 50-some-year-old woman who's kept a career the whole time and had kids and sit down with a 50-some-year-old woman who hasn't and, you know, maybe feed them some truth serum. It's really interesting. Would I believe that you are happy being a mother? Oh, I'm very happy with my role in life. So if we shift sort of from my political and societal interest in parenthood into the question of, you know, how it's been for me personally, which I, I do write about just in a different way, one of the things that I really set out to do a few years ago was to figure out, well, okay, so many of us are not necessarily happy parents. We're frantic parents. We're anxious parents. We're um, worried parents. We're devoted parents. We're passionate parents. But happy is not necessarily in the vocabulary. And that was not where I wanted to be. You know, this is 20 plus years of your life that we're talking about on a really down and dirty level. You you don't want to write those off as, well, that's going to be the busy time. And then when we're done with that, I'll go have... That doesn't make any sense to me. So I, you know, I've wanted to make having a family a joyful refuge as opposed to a burden. And it's funny to be in this position of sort of being a, a professional on the topic of family and also having my, my personal life revolve around family. But there's such a conundrum for a lot of people who would like to have 20 years of pure joy, and then there's a divorce, and then there's an affair, and then there's a child who has mental illness. So how would you put that together for someone or allow someone that latitude in either expressing it or in your own expression of this? Well, this is something that is, it's, it's hard to express correctly. So I hope that I get it right. But I've spent the past couple of years really working on a book about trying to be happier around our parenting lives. And in the process of that, I have spent hours, I mean, weeks, days, months, I don't, don't know how to add it up, interviewing other people who are at various points in their parenting journey, and definitely people who've lost spouses, people who've divorced, who didn't want divorce, which is a, a, you know, a, a sort of a different question, people who struggle with their own mel- mental illnesses, and those people, and it's, you know, I don't want to, I've had my own personal issues, but I don't want to speak for everyone, but most people would like to be happier. And there's room in most of our lives, even within the space of things being hard and things having gone wrong, to be happier about the things that are sort of the normal everyday challenges. Things are bad, but you still have to get up and get breakfast every morning. How can that be a happier time for you to be with your family. Things are hard, but you don't want 
your kids and your family and that part of your life to be an additional hard thing. How can that be the good thing even when things are going wrong? At least one person that I talked to was sort of infuriated by the idea that just because something bad had happened to her um, and just because she suffered from a particular illness that was really debilitating, that she wouldn't want to be happier. What is one of the myths that being a mother actually changed for you? And then what is one of the most overriding myths the people who write to you or the people you're speaking with grapple with? What is one of the myths? I think that one of the most interesting myths that I've been thinking about recently is that somehow it used to be easier because of some external change. There's a really great book out there on this topic that's called The Way We Never Were, The Myths Around Family and Our our Family History. And I think we sort of have, I mean, I think certain things were easier for our parents in that there was much more of a sort of a societal agreement about what a good kid looked like and how you got to that place. Punishment was pretty much standard and there were certain expectations and people lived up to them. Those things have changed. But in terms of the the sort of sheer amount of work that it takes when you say, all right, you know, here you go, scrummage for your own berries in the woods and hunt for your own meat, but while you're doing it, please carry around this eight-pound useless lump of humanity and feed that too. Mm -hmm. It's always been hard. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we have this sense that it used to be easier and it ought to be easier, and I don't, I don't think that's right. I think we need to sort of find a way to just let it be the challenge that it is and make that be okay. So then conversely, what do you think are some of the truisms about motherhood? Oh, the truisms about motherhood. I have great truisms about motherhood. Here's one. You can be happy when your kids aren't. I'm sorry, are you telling me this or asking me this? <laughs> no, this is something that I have found that is uh, an important you sort of got me off on a tangent because I have a list of truisms or mantras or, or parenting truths that I've been pulling together. But one of my favorite is that you, you can be happy when your kids aren't and you maybe should be. And let me explain because that sounds bad. That doesn't sound bad, but it sounds a little funny, right? So here yes. you are and here's your poor kid and they have gotten a terrible grade on their test and now they're not going to be able to move on to the advanced mathematics class that they had counted on and probably from there they won't get into the high school you were hoping for and this is the end of you know their entire college yeah so we all know how silly that catastrophizing is but we definitely go down that road i have found that it is really important to let your children's emotions be theirs for a couple of reasons first when those bad things happen to your kids there's nothing wrong. It's, it's a bad grade on a test. Maybe it's even a, you know, a drunk driving arrest. That would be really bad. Or maybe it's a lost lovey. But fundamentally, you and your kids are safe and things are good. And you can keep that feeling in yourself while you empathize with your child. And one of the reasons that that's incredibly important for your kids that you be able to do that is that otherwise their problem becomes your problem in their eyes. And they are obligated to like change their emotional reaction so they can help you. They don't want you to be unhappy. So they have to be like, oh, but it's okay. Like they can't fully feel where they are. That's still a little amorphous to talk about. It's, it's something I'm still sort of putting the right words to. But I think it's really important to let your kids be miserable and not have them feel like they need 
to regulate their emotions for you. But there's a complexity here that I find that I too sometimes hunker back for the simplicity of what I believe that my upbringing was, which was far from simple. But we're talking about kind of a 1940s or 50s, you know, leave it to beaver. But there are these other underlying complexities like women bring to the table their own emotional baggage. Attachment issues are sometimes entirely prevalent. If you haven't worked on your own stuff, you're well going to give some of that along to your next generation and everything else in between. And yet sometimes those facts are overlooked. Would you agree? I think the more you can be aware of those, first of all, I think you just titled like some book on parenting, but there's a complexity. <laughs> there's absolutely so much complexity. I think the more we can be aware of the ways we bring our own emotional stuff to our kids, the more we can try to work on it apart from those poor kids who, you know, who maybe don't, who maybe wouldn't have had it if it weren't for us. But I do think we ought to talk about it more because I think it's really important. Everything from eating issues to body image issues to, like you said, attachment issues. And by that, I'm thinking about, you know, your own sense of whether your your parents loved you conditionally or loved you unconditionally. All of those things, they all play out when you have your own kids. And there is that, you know, I'm not saying pack them up in a box and, and tape it up so you don't spread them. You got to deal with them. But you got to find a way to deal with them without, um, yeah, without making them, I don't know, can we, can we share them by acknowledging them, but not share them in terms of having our kids adopt them? Mm-hmm. Tough. But the other factor is that we live in such a complicated time. The social mores are completely getting flipped around. The standards of living, the traditional expectations for children, even the expectations of going to college and turn out A, B, and C is sometimes X, Y, and Z, and sometimes kids never get jobs even if they went to college. Now, these are the kind of things that were unheard of 10 and 20 years ago. So you're talking about a time in our lives where there isn't a standard of living. You you mentioned that before, and that's a really interesting point. But then how do you move forward as a mother? Then how do you help your kids navigate things that are also changing during the course of their own short lives? Well, let me start by arguing just a little. Here's my pushback. Yeah, we live in a really complex time. Things are really changing, but we're not the first generation by any means to go through this kind of change. If you look back at the last century. For example, a lot of our mothers were not necessarily expected to go to college. Unless you were from a wealthy family or a, probably a coastal family, you're, you know, our mothers weren't necessarily expected to excel in academic classes in high school. Their parents might not have gone to high school at all. We went as a society from having like 10% of kids graduate from high school in 1910 to something more like 50% in 1940. So those generations of parents also saw these massive changes in what was expected for their kids and what was expected of their kids. And for immigrants, it was even bigger. In some ways, we kind of sit on the cusp of having been the first generation to be able to expect our kids' lives to turn out pretty much like ours did. That's really a relatively new thing. If you go back to like farming times, then yeah, you know, you probably expected your kids to have that farming thing. But this idea that our kids should be 
better off than we are or should be about the same as we are, that's actually pretty new. So I'm not saying let's don't be bothered because let's be bothered. There's a lot going on that's really tough, but we're not the first chunk of humanity to deal with this. We're not the first parents to look at our kids and go, I'm not sure what your life is going to look like, but it's probably not going to look like mine. Hmm. That's hard. It's weird. And it makes us want to like grab control instead of letting it go in the ways that we probably need to. But it's not necessarily new. And maybe that could make us feel a little better about it. Before I get to the present, I would like to talk really briefly about your thoughts about the new administration, its impact on the family, and I also would like to talk about your upcoming book. Back to the sense of being a mother and how women define themselves. There is a lot of shame in motherhood. There is a lot of shaming. There is a kind of perceived pecking order about how your delivery went and how you had your child or did you get your child, what your child looks like now, how well your kid is doing. I'm wondering your thoughts about this aspect. I am always grappling with that and I've written a number of posts on that. Does this impact your own personal life or professional life and what do you also want to say to women about this? Well, I see that professionally. You know, a lot of people writing and exploring and and talking about these issues. And, you know, as a parent and as a woman, one of the first things I want to say, especially to new mothers or mothers grappling with the idea that their birth didn't go the way they expected or their breastfeeding didn't go the way they expected or, you know, their fertility didn't go the way they expected. I'm sure you feel the same way as someone who's been in the game for a while. You can look at a classroom of kindergartners and you can't tell which ones were breastfed. I'm sorry, you just, you, you can't. <laughs> you might be able to guess if some of them are, you know, pretty much still riding in their mother's sling, but <laughs> other than that, you just can't tell. Those things, we need to let them evaporate and move forward with the kids and the lives that we have. We could find so much joy and pleasure in where we are if we can figure out a way to let go of where we've been. That's one thing. But we are, by nature, a comparing species. We we judge. I mean, you, as a parent, you've, presumably you've made some decisions around maybe the way your kids eat. And you've decided, and I don't mean you personally, we know, one, we've decided either we eat local and we're proud of that or we are vegetarian and we're proud of that or we we think that's all silly and you know we eat a little bit of everything and we're proud of that and i think when you're looking around at other people and sort of wondering if you're making the right choices because theirs are different it's important to sort of go well yeah they think their choices are right or they wouldn't have made them and i think my choices are right or i wouldn't have made them and maybe Try to work a little harder on embracing what you're doing instead of looking at what other people are doing. Sure. I got another thought on that, which is that we can't all do everything. This is something I have made myself crazy over. Like, I hate breakfast. I don't want breakfast until like 10.30 or 11, by which point it's pretty much lunch. I don't want anything to do with breakfast. I don't like morning. It's really hard for me. I've finally gotten to a point where I can sort of get up and be reasonably pleasant. And this is something I tell a big story about in the book because mornings are one of the things that makes me really unhappy in life. It's okay that I don't do breakfast. I do other things. I do dinner really well sometimes. And there's others. Like, I cook with my kids. And so if I posted a whole massive series of me posting, like, you know, great pictures of me cooking with my kids, you could think, oh... I don't cook with my kids, but dude, I bet you're gardening with them 
or you're binge-watching Doctor Who with them, which, okay, I also do. But, like, you've got your thing. Grab your thing. We can't all have the same thing. That wouldn't be fun. But everybody's got something that they're doing together. We're talking today with New York Times writer K.J. Delantonia. Talk to me about the administration. What are your thoughts about where we stand as a society in terms of family values? Do you feel more alarmed that maybe we've taken a setback? Do you feel more concerted that maybe you're going to work a little harder? Where, where do you stand on all of this? Well, I am a member of the news team at the New York Times, which means that I am publicly, politically apolitical. So what my feeling about this is that every administration and politically and culturally, we need, we really need to work on how we're supporting our families. We've got a lot of problems. I mean, starting with the fact that you know, we're the only Western country with no form of actual parental leave, which is mind boggling. We want to encourage breastfeeding as a society, but we don't give people the room to do it, and we don't recognize that it has real costs, and I mean financial costs, for the women who step up to that role. Societally and policy-wise, we've got a really long way to go. I would love to see this administration take a look around and take some cues at what some of the countries around us have been able to achieve. Canada has a really interesting child income, and a lot of European countries have something like that that's a different way of supporting families. There's all kinds of interesting policies to explore out there, and I could really go on at length about that, that I don't think we've spent enough time on because we have this American... uh, Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You're on your own. You made your bed. Now you lie in it kind of approach to raising families that is not smart because we really need our next generation to be a fantastic next generation, not one that's been raised by desperate parents scrambling for money and time. It's, you know, we're really in a tough spot and we've been in a tough spot for a while. Tell me a little bit now about your new book. Tell me about it. I don't know. As yet, it's untitled. I think the subtitle is something along the lines of Raising a Family, Having a Life, and Loving Every Minute of It. And it's a practical book about the things that are hard for us as parents, where things go wrong, both because of the ways our society works and the ways that we respond to that, and really on a level that I'm really excited about, how you can make it better in your own life. You know, I didn't write a book about how government policy could make all of our lives better, although I think that it could. What I did was to write a book about, okay, this is where we are. This is the hand that we've been dealt. Let's make it as fantastic as we possibly can, given where we are. So it's very practical. The chapters go from mornings to chores to homework, stuff we didn't really talk about, the day-to-day of personal parenthood. And in every one, it's why is this so hard, which you know, sometimes it does stem from policy. I mean, mornings are hard because school starts at 7.50. My God, no one wants to do that. Sports are hard because we really have let youth sports get out of control. God, I love talking about youth sports. <laughs> so in every chapter, there's a whole discussion of, of what the challenges are, which ones you have any control over, and then how to grab control over the ones you can and make this the best that it can be for you and your kids, not for your kids and you, which is kind of a different order. How many people have you already spoken with? Oh, I have not kept count. I mean, it's it incorporates everybody that I've ever interviewed in my five years with Motherload and my year, year with Well Family. And um, 
Lots, hundreds. I also did some research where I worked with a guy at Fordham, set up a survey, did 1,000 parents of varying income and, you know, across the country. So I wanted to make sure that I had a really national conversation, and I think I did. You happen to be one of the most preeminent voices on motherhood in the country. So I think as a writer and the editor for Motherload for the New York Times for five years, kind of gave you a position of not only, I don't want to say power, but I really mean to say influence and a bird's eye view. So I'm wondering if this kind of job carried with it a a huge sense of responsibility or a burden or whether or not you just felt that you were pretty darn good at disseminating information and allowing people a venue to voice their truth, their stories. Well, I absolutely went at it with the mission. And Lisa Belkin, who founded it and who we all know and love as having been a great voice in motherhood and parenthood, when she left, Motherload was, well, honestly, it wasn't able to pay its writers. So one of my missions in going into it was to make it a paid part of the time so that our contributors could be more and varied. And then my second mission This was just a part of our changing and evolving time. I wanted to make sure that we got so many different voices in there. And Lisa had done the same. It was a shared thing that we didn't want this to be, hello, this is how a mother who is also a writer for the New York Times approaches life. We wanted it to be a space for the point of view of a single parent by choice, the point of view of a single parent not by choice, the the point of view of a mother with two different shift work jobs and how she was trying to deal with getting her kids to and from school in the middle of all that. And then one of the things that really expanded during my five years was our societal awareness of gender issues and sexuality issues has really changed. So I was able to feature lesbian mothers and gay fathers, and in one case, an entire diary from a gay guy who was being the sperm donor for his two lesbian friends. That was really exciting. I I just wanted to get a lot of different perspectives in a place where we could see other people's lives that were not our own. That's actually a sort of continuing mission, is to tell true stories and help other people tell true stories. I think sharing our stories, you know, it's how we make sense of who we are and who other people are and where we are in the world. Before we run out of time, I would like to know, what do you envision for the next decade of your own life? And do you ever think about leaving a legacy? I'm going to answer the second part of that question first. The Internet is so, you know, it's quintessential birdcage journalism. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. But... But it's not really gone. It's all still in there. And I would like to hope that the way that both my writing and really my editing has expanded the conversation around what it means to be a parent, around what gender has to do with being a parent, um, you know, around what our family responsibilities are and how they shouldn't be any different based on our sex. I hope that stays a part of our conversation around gender and parenting for as long as we're having that conversation. I hope that's very brief, but I have a feeling it's going to go on for a while. So, you know, I I hope people are still reading those, you know, for some reasonable amount of time. I I don't have any illusions, though, that that this is going to live on other than sort of as a, I hope it's just a, a moment in history when we had these conversations and then everything changed and got better. That would be lovely. 
Then the question of me in 10 years. Well, I mean, I have this book. You and I, we've just had this big sort of macro conversation about motherhood and policy and gender and all kinds of things. And really, I've written this pretty micro book about let's make our own lives better, but I do really care about that. I wouldn't have written what amounts to a self-help book for me and other parents about trying to make our lives as happy and as wonderful as we can if I didn't want that to happen. So I'm really excited to spend the next few months editing and getting that ready to get out there and then probably the next year talking about it. That'll be kind of fun for a change. And final words for the listener? You know, there's probably nothing wrong right now. Look around and have a have a great moment with your kids, even if it isn't necessarily what you thought a great moment was going to look like before you had them. Where can people find you? You can find me at kjdelantonia.com. The best way to follow me right now, because I'm writing somewhat sporadically for the Times, because I've been wrapping up the book, so the best way to follow me is to join my email list. I'm sending out weekly essays that vary from bird's-eye views of parenting to pretty personal views of parenting. You can follow me on Twitter at KJ Delantonia. I have great conversations on Facebook. That is a really fun place to be. We've been talking today with the writer and contributing editor for the New York Times Well family page, formerly known as Motherload, and a regular contributor to its Sunday Review. KJ, thank you so much for joining me today. This was fun. Thank you. It was fun. I'm Sima Shapiro, your host of Four Women Over 40 Conversations with Sima. Thank you so much to the listener for joining us today. And until next time, I hope you take care.